Welcome to the Classic City Church Podcast. At C3, we exist to help people pattern their lives after Jesus. This message was first given as part of our teaching series at C3. Well, we are continuing in the Gospel of Mark. We are in still in chapter 10, and today I pick up, well, we'll pick up at verse 32. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them uh, what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places, these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who regard as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Today's uh, sermon title is called Servant Leadership. My childhood was wonderful, but also a little strange. (laughs) Dad's nodding a little bit. So my dad had this idea that my, he was going to influence my sister and I to be leaders, like no matter what. And um, if, in fact, there's a phrase that says leadership is influence, and I would know that because my dad was always peddling it. You're a leader. And honestly... I was probably the most reluctant leader there probably ever was. In the car, my dad would play these leadership book tapes. Um, It was side A and side B. Uh, That was uh, (laughs) that dates me. But on this was like on family vacation, we would listen to John Maxwell's Twenty One Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. On really long car journeys, like I was like, let's play some music, all right. I can remember one time dad sent me to leadership camp. I say dad because I don't know that mom would have sent us to leadership camp. So we went to like this hotel in Florida and like we never got to see the outside. You were inside and you went into the room and you, you listened to seminars about leadership. 
And uh, the only thing that I was looking forward to was at the end of the week that you got to go to Universal Studios for a day. So I was like, I just need to grind it out. Hold on, the fun's coming. I know it's coming. Just push through the pain. When I became co-captain of my freshman basketball team, you thought I would have been elected to the United States of America. Oh my gosh, co-captain of your freshman basketball team. It was like a huge celebration. Um, Even I had signs, you would get quotes, like laminated or framed, picture framed, and they would show up in my room. Only positive attitudes beyond this point, which... I can tell you what, there was no positive attitude. When I was a teenager, there was no positive attitudes. Behind that point, um, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. All these things. I can remember then when Dad's prayers finally paid off and I became involved in church leadership at my first church in uh, Sheffield, England. And I did work with college students. My dad got me a book to celebrate, which was called um, Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sanders, in which I opened the book and I read about uh, biblical leadership, about Jesus and about Paul and examples of the apostle Peter. And then I questioned to myself, oh my gosh, this sounds really difficult. What did I sign up for? Right? This book is really, really powerful, but it was no messing around when you got to biblical leadership and what it means Talked about picking up a cross and dying to yourself and not being about you and serving all other people. And I can remember Oswald Chambers, I have this underline, I was flipping through the book this week as I looked at servant leadership and this topic, and Oswald Chambers says in his book, he says, a cross stands in the path of, a spiritual, of spiritual leadership and a leader must take it up. No cross, no leadership. That sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? But Jesus leads by example. Jesus is the best leader ever in the world. And um, there's another leadership quote. says, the hardest person you'll ever lead is yourself. And yet Jesus chose the cross. Jesus not, did not come for an earthly throne. He came to die for each and every one of us, to give his life as a ransom. That's what we read out this morning. It says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As you grow as a leader in the kingdom of God, it is a downward mobility. The the higher you go, uh, the more you have to be willing to serve and to love people. The more selfless It should become. It doesn't always go that way. And in fact, some theologians, they they sum up Mark's gospel by calling it the suffering servant, which was what we find today in Jesus quoting from uh, the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah talks about the uh, prediction of the, the suffering servant that would come as the Messiah, which we'll get to in a moment. But as we pick this up in verse 32, It says, they were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished. Again, their jaws are open. They're confused. They don't know exactly what Jesus is doing. Um, And it said, while those who followed were afraid. 
Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen. Uh, the disciples are astonished. There seems to be this inward, cir- this, this kind of inner circle of Jesus and his 12, but it seems to be that there were other followers. And while the disciples are kind of, kind of astonished, their jaws are open, they're kind of still confused about all these things that Jesus were ta- was talking about, uh, the other followers, uh, they are becoming afraid as they inch their way towards, towards Jerusalem where there's about to be a big showdown. And so he gathers up the 12 um, disciples, and he says this. He says in verse 33, We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise." This is the third and last time that Jesus will predict about his death and his resurrection in the most vivid detail um, in the Gospel of Mark. And the religious leaders, they're going to arrest him. They're, they're going to turn him over to the Gentiles, over to the Romans, which they only did to people who they despised the most because they despised and hated the Romans so much that this was kept for the worst of the worst. There's no way that they saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the Messiah, yet they saw him as a threat and they wanted to get rid of Jesus. But Jesus, on the other hand, was fully aware of what was expected of him. This is the third time that he predicts that the cross was no surprise to Jesus. It was predetermined. It was predestined. It was preordained. This was a pre-planned event that Jesus was glad to do. That Jesus came to give his life on the cross for me and for you. I know a lot of the time that we think, oh, that Jesus, he died on the cross. This was a terrible event. Oh, that was, it went way wrong that he had to die. Oh, but good news. He popped up and he was resurrected. And it, it seemed like, oh, this was a huge surprise that he'd be raised from the dead. No, this was not a surprise to Jesus. And a lot of the time we think that this is a reversal of a defeat, but actually Jesus' death and resurrection is the manifestation of a victory. That this would not end in tragedy, but this would end in triumph. And yet Jesus has great courage as he goes closer and closer to the cross. And while this very serious moment is, is happening, you can, you can feel the tension in this passage. You can feel the serious of the moment. Here come Jesus' disciples, John and James, the sons of thunder. What do they have to say? They say, teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It sounds like when my kids want something from me and like instead of asking and seeing whether they, they're kind of trying to trick you into agreeing to it before you really even know what it's about. And so this is what Jesus says. He says, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. 
Jesus has way more patience than what I would have at this point. Here is this very serious moment. Here is this very tense moment. Jesus must be feeling the weight as he inches his way to Jerusalem. And all John and James are thinking about is themselves. That John and James, they still have this idea that Jesus is going into Jerusalem, that that's his big moment where there's going to be this showdown, and Jesus is going to take his throne, and they know they can't be number one, but they sure as heck want to be number two and number three. If this was today, they're the ones that are, are, are asking for, um, are, they're, they're asking for to fly first class. They're the ones that are asking for box seats next to Taylor Swift at the the chief games, right? They want to be in the place where they can see it all happen. They want to be number two and they want to be number three. And the worst thing about this is that when you look at Matthew's version of this story, they go and they send their mother to do their bidding. Like, can you imagine that? Like, can you think of anything more cringy than that is to send your mommy to do your bidding for you. It's like, it feels like it's a really embarrassing moment for James and for John. And James and John, even though they've heard about this discussion about Jesus, that he's going to die, he's going to be resurrected, um, they must think it's like a picture of a metaphor because they're still certain that, that even though that they're going to Jerusalem, there's going to be this showdown. They know things are going to be hard and they're going to be tough, but surely Jesus is going to come out on top, that, that he's going to have the victory, that, that it's going to be really hard, but we're going to grit our teeth and we'll come out with the big win in the end. And Jesus replies, he says, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? That Jesus saw his metaphor, his death and his resurrection as a, as a metaphor for the cup. In the Old Testament, the cup is a metaphor for um, God's wrath against sin. That God hates Sin. He hates the destruction. He hates the, the chaos that comes in our, in our broken world by the wrong things that, that are in our lives. When we don't follow God's way, when we're disobedient, when we go against God, when we worship other things besides God, he hates all that. If, if actually, if you want to read more about um, uh, God's cup or God's wrath, um, you can actually look that up in Jeremiah chapter 25. But I love what theologian N.T. Wright says about uh, God's wrath. He says, God's wrath is what happens when foreign armies come and destroy God's people, God's city. Jesus' task is to go ahead and take the full force of that wrath on himself. That Jesus saw himself as drinking the cup of God's hostile reaction to the sin of the world on our behalf. I think a lot of the time it's like a parent, right? That, that you can see like when your kids are misbehaving and how they treat each other. And like you hate that. Like, you know, when they're misbehaving and, and they're just, they're doing, dis being disobedient. A parent never hates their child, but sometimes you can hate their behavior. And I think so often we, we, we get this confused because God doesn't, God hates sinful behavior, he never hates his children. God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. 
In fact, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that Jesus chose himself to come on our behalf and die for us. So James and John, they think they can come and they can have this cup of suffering. And I feel like this is like when you're with a group of preschoolers and you go to ask them a question, and before you can ask the question, they just go ahead and they, can ra- they, they, they raise their hand like they don't know what they're even going to answer, right? And they say, we can. But can you? Can you? We can, they answered. Jesus is so patient. And before he can kind of finish the question, you can see James and John, they're already eager. They just, they're looking for their their, their position, jousting for their position. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. James and John, they will suffer persecution in the early church. But when Jesus sits in glory, The ones on his left and his right are not going to be on a throne. They will be his criminals on his right and his left as he's raised up on the cross. See, Jesus' place of glory is not on a throne, but it's when he's raised up on the whole cross, on the cross, bleeding and dying for the sins of the world. In verse 41, it says, When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Can you imagine that, being part of a group, and two people are sneak behind the group's back to go and to get the really good spots, right? And it's supposed to be like this group thing that they're a part of. The, the 12 disciples are supposed to represent the, the, the 12 uh, tribes of Israel, and it's supposed to be kind of this, this, equal, this equal thing. And here we go, James and John sneaking out of the group, going behind their back to go get the prominent positions. If I was part of the group, I'd be pretty mad too. And I wonder whether the disciple, the other 10 disciples, they were mad because um, uh, of James and John, they were just supposed to be equal. Or I wonder if the other 10, they beat James and John to the punch, right? They were like, oh, I was going to ask Jesus for those, position, those positions. Because it's not the first time that the disciples have been caught in this kind of um, uh, conversation. The earlier in Mark's gospel, they were wrestling, they were, they were trying to joust for the position. Who's going to be first? Who's going to be Jesus' number two? Who's going to be his number three? Like, who are going to be the better disciples? I wonder if some of them, they were just jealous because James and John beat them to the punch. So Jesus, at this point, he says, he calls a timeout and he groups them together. He calls for a huddle, gets the 12 together and says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be, la- must be slave of all. Jesus is saying, don't be like those godless rulers. Don't be like those godless, greedy rulers who oppress everybody else. 
In my kingdom, it's not about being first, it's about being less. It's not being uh, elevating yourself, it's about getting down and washing people's feet. It's about being a servant of all. It's not about being first, it's about being less. It's not about being top-down leadership, this is about a bottom-up movement of people who are willing to serve in my kingdom. If you want to be first in my kingdom, you've got to be dead last. And then Jesus says, by pointing to his own example, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom in this phrase, it means to set a prisoner of war free or to set a slave free. That we know that that sin is this debt that we cannot get out of, that we cannot pay for ourselves. And that Jesus paid that price for us. That that's the word for in this sentence. It, It means in place of. This is one of the best examples in all of Scripture for what we call the uh, like a substitutionary uh, form of atonement. The word atonement means to cover over death, right? That that Jesus paid the price that we deserve. That the wages of sin is death, and yet Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. That Jesus is the Lamb of God, right? That 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 paid the price for us. Even though he was perfect, he took our place by giving his life on the cross for us. He is the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Jesus paid the price for our redemption. You know, one of the major problems when I look at our world is that our world is full of leaders who are all about themselves. Um instead of serving others. And, and I think a lot of people, they get into maybe public service or public leadership, um, whether it's inside the church or whether it's politics or, or whatever kind of sector that they lead in. I think a lot of the time, there's a mixed bag of motivations. So James and John, surely they have some good things uh, that, that they do in their leadership, but also there's some things some desires in their heart that isn't right. And I think for so many of us, we come to Jesus with good things, but also with things that we know that aren't right. I think like James and John, we want to serve, but we also desire position, promotion, pay, or popularity. To which Jesus reminds us, and he says to his disciples and to us, not so with you. And though there have been some standout Christian leaders throughout history, the vast majority of leaders that have built or or kind of paved the way for the global church have been no-name people. They're people leading churches of 50, 100, and you would never know their names. They've come at great sacrifice, They've come in diligently and humbly serving Jesus. Unlike so many of our leaders today who continually to point to themselves, they say, no, 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 don't point, don't look at me, don't look at me, look past me, look to Jesus. He is the one that we need to be glorifying. He is the one that we need to be pointing to. It's not about me, it's about Jesus. 
And that is what our world needs today more than ever, more than ever before. Our hurting world needs men and women of Jesus, followers of Jesus, to become leaders for Jesus. See, disciples aren't supposed to stay students. They're meant to become master apprentices of Jesus. But maybe you're here today and maybe you feel like you're a reluctant leader similar to me. Maybe you have the feeling to say, I'm not good enough. I'm not talented enough. What do I have to offer? What can I give? I'm not old enough. I'm too old. I I think the truth is we all have our insecurities. We all have our doubts. We all have our struggles. And yet for each and every one of us that God calls us by the power of his Holy Spirit, he fills us, he gives us gifts, he equips us to play a part in the kingdom of God to lead, to point other people to Jesus, to bring other people to know Jesus, to serve him, to play a role not necessarily on a stage, but on a behind the scenes. I think more than ever, we need disciples of Jesus to become leaders for Jesus. More than ever, we need people to step up with people with different abilities to be leaders for Jesus in our world, to be the kind of leader that Jesus was calling us to be. And I think the whole point is not to discourage us because you could look at it and be like, oh, this is really, really difficult. There is no way I want to be a leader in God's kingdom. I think the whole point point of this is that Jesus raises the bar of what true leadership really looks like. And Jesus doesn't just tell us to do it, but Jesus led it by example. Our world doesn't need any more leaders who are self-absorbed, self-promoted, and with empty promises. But we need servants of Jesus willing to step up and step out, not pointing to themselves, but pointing to the one who gave his life up so that we could gain life. As his disciples were called to follow in his footsteps of the great suffering servant. We hope that this message helps you to grow in a relationship with Jesus. Connect with us at classiccitychurch.org.